there was a lot of opportunity for anxiety and worry and concern. Have any of you been there in your own personal budgets and finances and looking at inflation and the cost of groceries and uh, medical bills or whatever it is? And, uh, and we come to the end of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, and, uh, and realize, even as, as Paul is summing up his letter, that the whole time Philippians has been basically a thank you support letter to the church at Philippi for their generosity. And he's going to talk very honestly about his needs, and we're not going to get into all that today, but just as we come into, uh, into the end of Philippians, recognizing that Paul knew the strain that finances and giving or the lack of giving and generosity that that can place on us both individually and as a church. And it's right in the middle of that conversation that Paul has the audacity to make this statement. Do not be worried about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it really, it's not even just uh, it, this statement in the midst of uh, this kind of uh, conversation around giving and generosity, but, but there's also, there's relational conflict happening in the church. And we'll get into that in just a second. But, but, but there's, there's, uh, there's this fracture in relationships that's happening. And, and maybe for you, the biggest stress in your life this past week hasn't been finances, but it's been relationships. Anyone been there? Where there's, whether it's at work with a coworker or a boss or an employee or at home with a spouse or a child, and all of a sudden realizing the amount of anxiety and weight that fractured relationships can place on us in our hearts and in our homes, right? They go to bed thinking about it. You wake up in the middle of the night and, and all of a sudden realize, have you ever had, like, you've been actually having a good day? I mean, like, you're, you're out and enjoying the weather and, uh, you know, and just having fun or eating a good meal. And all of a sudden, that there's that person with that just this unresolved, constant sort of irritant. And all of a sudden, you're thinking about this person that you have this beef with. And you're like, wait, I'm enjoying dinner. How did I just invite that person to my dinner? And we give so much mental space and energy to these unresolved conflicts. Anybody been there? And in the middle of this relational conflict around two very real people that Paul obviously knows and loves, Paul has the audacity to write, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it's not just relational conflict. You know, Paul is literally sitting in a prison cell, writing this letter to a church that is surrounded by the empire that is imprisoning him uh, and is actively persecuting the Jesus, Jesus movement that's happening. And in fact, the very, one of the very last lines of the letter, he will reference Caesar's household. That even in the midst of this empire 
actively seeking to crush the Jesus movement, the kingdom of God is advancing, and we see this conflict of the, in the spiritual realm and in the political realm, and in the midst of all of the turmoil and the and, and the craziness and the chaos and the pain that that religious, political, global conflict can have. Paul has the audacity to write, "Do not be anxious about anything." And it's not even just financial stress, relational conflict, global political term, religious turmoil. But he'll reference a friend of his that has been his companion while he's been there in jail who got so sick he almost died. And this illness that seemed like it was going to take one of his closest friends' life. Anybody been there? I know you have, because I pray over your prayer requests. And in the middle of that, Paul has the audacity to write, do not be anxious about anything. These aren't just words that he's just throwing away or an interesting spiritual idea that sort of is like Zen out there somewhere to, to uh, meditate upon. But in the flesh and blood reality of life, Paul is giving them a path forward into peace. And it was so interesting as I was meditating on this, and I can feel, I feel actually very tender right now, even preaching this, because... This past week, I had just the privilege to go on vacation with my family over fall break. We went to the beach. It was beautiful. And in the middle of all of that, in the back of my head, I know we're having this budget conversation coming up and how do we present this well and, and how do we han you know, handle our finances well as a church. And at the same time, uh, <laughs> my wife has... Uh, has strained her ACL and we're getting all the, the medical bills from, from, uh, that go with that. And I'm gone for just a handful of days. And while I'm gone, uh, two close friends from the church both end up in with emergency surgery. And, um, and, uh, another longtime member of our church lost his mother. And at the same time, in the midst of all of that, everything is, uh, just a, the horrific, um, uh, circumstances that are going on over in Israel and Palestine and, and specific, uh, specifically Gaza and, and messaging with, with friends over there and connected um, with the things going on. And, and all of that from a very personal level to a very, to a, a church level, to a global level, feel the weight of the worries and the pain and the tragedies and traumas of this world. And I'm reading this passage and I'm supposed to preach this message on do not be anxious about anything. But I really do believe 
that the scriptures are the authoritative word of God and a message of life and the life that we're invited into. So there's got to be something there. And as I was processing all of this and very specifically just the grief I was feeling about what was happening uh, in the Holy Land, God just brought me into this place of peace. And so I want to read this scripture and, and dive in and just uh, the few minutes that we have. And really, I say this every week, way more important than anything that I would have to say from up here would be what God is wanting to speak into your heart and life through his word. And so my hope and prayer as we've gone through Philippians and even as we dig in this morning is that you would open your heart to God's word and God's spirit. And even that posture, whatever, as I was going through the anxieties and the cares and the concerns that we can all so easily feel, whatever was coming to your mind, whatever kept you up last night, whatever you woke up thinking about this morning, to allow God to speak in. Because I really do believe that his word is an invitation to peace, to true peace. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We'll read Philippians, this first part of chapter 4. And then dig in a little bit. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You may be seated. The word of God. So Paul begins this section with this powerful word, therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters. And anytime we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what's it there for? 
And so he had to go back. What Paul is saying is now in, in light of the things that I just wrote about, the things I just shared, take action in this way. It's a connecting word that, that brings the, the truths that he has just uh, expounded in the previous section into the, the path forward in the next section. So in other words, what Paul's saying is, all right, so now take action in light of what has just been said. Take action in light of the fact that it's the end of chapter 3. That Benji did just such a phenomenal job last week uh, diving into but take light of the fact, in light of the fact that as Christians, we are a colony of heaven in the midst of enemy territory. In light of the fact that we eagerly expect Jesus to return as Savior and King. And in light of the fact that our hope is in the complete transformation of our earthly bodies in light of the resurrection. Therefore, Stand firm. Therefore, stand firm. That our confidence is in the Lord, in His presence and in His power. That language there of, is, is, uh, is military language. Stand firm like soldiers, despite the pressure to abandon your post. It's despite all of the pressures of this world, despite all of the, the, the burdens within your, your life and your heart, stand firm. And so what does that look like? What does that look like to stand firm in light of the reality of who we are in Christ and who Jesus is for us? Well, the invitation to peace begins first with dealing with conflict. Which, if you know me at all, I hate conflict. I, I am not one of which, you know, I, honestly, I think the majority of people uh, do not enjoy conflict. I've only met a handful of people that are like, no, no, I really enjoy it. And you know what? I just don't like those people. <laughs> no offense if that see here's my conflict avoidance right there no offense I just offended you though you like conflict so you'll probably say something to me later no I don't I, I, I hate it I mean I get all like amped up inside you know like just like having to deal with something I get all nervous I, I feel like that my voice is going to start shaking and I'm going to and I I'm, even if I try to like sound forceful Sadie calls me actually she says that I'm the velvet hammer uh that and which I think was supposed to be a compliment, but <laughs> makes me feel soft. And uh, even when I'm trying to be intense about something, like I'll, like uh, you know, really like come down on somebody on, on something like that, you know, something happened that needs to be addressed. And uh, and I'll be having a conversation with something, challenging somebody on something. And I'll get and the whole time I'm just like all this all this nervous energy. And I'll get off the phone and I'll be like, oh, I mean, how did I handle that? Was I too rough on them? And she'll go, oh, you're trying to be rough? <laughs> like, yeah, that was like me bowed up. I mean, like, that was my, like, tough guy and posture right there. But, but you know, I, I don't love conflict, and um, which I, I think most of us don't. And we actually, th that internal angst that gets stirred up when there is conflict most people just try to alleviate in some way, and most of the way, and often that is just by avoiding it. 
uh, is often by, you know, um, running away, either pretending that it doesn't exist, or sometimes we'll try to release the tension, that relational tension or that conflict by, by going to somebody else. Like I can make myself feel better about my internal angst with this person or this issue by dealing with it over here away from that person because that feels way too scary or, or, or way too, there's way too much, much consequence on me addressing directly with the thing that is creating the true conflict in me or with somebody else. And so Paul, I mean, I love it. You've you got to imagine the way this is happening. Because when we read Philippians, we have a Bible that we read and we can go have our quiet time and we can quickly read through this passage. But that's not how it would have played out in the early church. Like, most people didn't read. Bibles weren't printed yet. They didn't even have the printing press. It, it, it was, it was uh, read out loud. And, and Paul would have on parchment written out uh, this letter or had somebody uh, transcribe a letter to be read. He would have then given it to a, a messenger who would have then gone to the church meeting at somebody's home. That church would have gathered around, especially because they just got word from Paul, a really big deal. Everyone would have crowded in to hear what Paul had to say. And then the messenger would stand in front of this living room packed with people. And then he would begin or she would begin to read that letter out loud to the room. And as you, that person is reading the letter out loud, Judea and Syntyche are sitting in the room. It'd almost be like me saying, hey, Peter and Addie, you really need to deal with your junk. They're actually great because everyone have a baby and life's super happy and I can really pick them because they're a safe people. But didn't everyone get a little bit nervous just then? Or if all of a sudden I would just be like, oh, I'm not going to name any actual relational tensions in the room right now. But hey, deal with it and you deal with it. And even though it's the way that he says it, he doesn't even clump them together. He deals with them as two individuals. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche. Have one mind in the Lord. In other words, come together. And remember who you are and who you belong to. In fact, he, he, uh, he cites their shared history, reminding them that they have a story together. They've labored together. They, they fought alongside of each other. And so now, yes, they're fighting each other, but what he's reminding them is you've been a part of a bigger battle that you're on the same team. And I wonder how many times in our conflict, whether it's in our marriages or in our workplaces or, or, or with our children, that we need to remember, it's like we're on the same team. And we have a shared story and a shared history. And the only person that you can do anything about is you. Which is why Paul personally addresses each one of them. As far as it is with you, you make it right. And as far as it is with you, you make it right. You don't just sit there waiting for them to change or to, to make it right. And you don't just sit there waiting for them to change and make it right. You do what you can to change and you do what you can to change because you've both been given the mind of Christ. So come together. Now, I don't know if you caught what I was saying just then, because that is powerful and incredibly difficult. 
especially in the relationships that are most intimate for us. How many of us as spouses at our core really believe that the problems we have in our marriage can only get better if our spouse would change? And at some point, some people begin to believe that if, if my spouse is not gonna change, then my only solution is to change my spouse. Just be honest. I sat across from enough individuals and couples. The reality is, you can't change your spouse. And the path forward for you in conflict, whether it's in your marriage or in a friendship, is to figure out what you can do to love better, to lean into Jesus, to forgive, to be honest. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. where Jesus addresses both sides of a conflict. Matthew 5, if your brother has something against you, in other words, you've offended your brother. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, in other words, your brother has offended you, and in both of them, you go and make it right. But then notice where Paul goes with this. He doesn't just leave it hanging there. He actually, uh, he, he actually makes a plea to somebody else. So we don't know who this person is. He just refers to them as true companion. And actually there's some debate among uh, tr Bible translators whether true companion is um, the, like, the, the meaning behind a proper name or if it's like a, a, a nickname or a way that somebody's referred to in the community, but what's clear is he's talking to a, a specific person that the church in Philippi would have known who he was talking about that was known as true companion, or maybe it's the, the, the Greek name Zygus. But he tells Zygus, or true companion, help these women who've labored side by side. Help them remember who they are. Help them remember that they are in this together together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, and he calls the community of faith to come together to resolve this conflict. That we need the power of community and conflict resolution, not to take sides, but to come together and to keep pointing us to Jesus. To help us heal, to help us forgive, to help us be honest, to help us accept. We need each other. And the question becomes, are we the kind of people and are we the kind of community that is sowing seeds of discord or seeds of peace? Like, are the words that we're saying to one another, especially around areas of conflict and tension, are they words that are drawing people together 
and pointing them to Jesus? Or are they words that are pulling people apart? That are pointing out differences. Oh, you are totally right. He is such a jerk. I can't believe she said that. She, she, seriously, she said that? Or we honestly look each other in the eye and say, okay, what are you bringing to this? And where's your offense? What can you change? Have you forgiven her? What's God saying to you about that? That's way harder. It is way easier to jump on the conflict train and ride it in a different direction against somebody else than it is to lean in and to come together, especially in all of the angst and anxiety that conflict rises up within us. And then out of that, Paul makes this famous statement that is on posters and bumper stickers all over the place, and I don't know that we often think about the context in which he writes it. Immediately after dealing with a very personal and intense conflict happening within the church, naming two individuals, that obviously their disagreement isn't just affecting them, but it's affecting the the culture of that entire community, Paul declares... Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say it, rejoice. Rejoice. Be people of joy. Be people that know the reality and the presence and the healing and the freedom and the forgiveness of God in Jesus. Be the people of grace. And let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And you can circle this in your Bibles. How? The Lord is at hand. That joy and peace is available only by the presence of God. That you are not alone. That he is at with you, he is with you, and he is at work in you and for you. And in that powerful statement that the Lord is at hand, the Lord is present, the Lord is as near as the person sitting next to you, the Lord is as close as your own breath, and he has never turned his face away from you. He is for you and he is with you. And then coming on the heels of that statement is when Paul declares, so be anxious about for nothing. So how? Well, he lays it out. And everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is this two-way conversation with the Lord who sees us and knows us and knows a whole lot more than we do. And supplication is hearing back from God. Okay, God, what do I actually need? What am I wanting? What are you wanting? And in thanksgiving, God, where is the good? What is the blessing that I'm missing? So whatever that area of anxiety or worry is, be honest with God about it. Okay, God, here it is. 
This is what's keeping me up. This is what, this is, what is stirring up so much angst in my soul. God, what do you want me to know? Where are you at work? What are you wanting out of this? And then out of that, make your request known to God. What do you need? And you're like, what do you really need? So much of anxiety and worry is this endless loop of, of, like, uh, of negative possibilities, of just vain imaginations that aren't even real, but possible outcomes and imagined conversations of, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this, and then when they say that, I'm going to say this. We've had an entire dialogue with somebody that doesn't even exist. Or what if this happens? I'm going to go into my boss's office and he's called a meeting tomorrow and and I don't know what it's about, but I did have that project that didn't go quite as well as I I thought it should. And and so, I mean, he might call me in and and he's going to chew me out. And in fact, what if he demotes me or what if he fires me? And if he fires me, we're not going to be able to have a a salary or a paycheck and we're going to be homeless and living on the streets and I'm going to have to sell my children and it's going to be awful. And we've gone from a meeting with a boss at 10 o'clock tomorrow that we don't know what it's about to selling our children. Anybody been there? And how quickly it spirals. And what Paul is saying is, is to take this worry and this anxiety and this endless loop of negative possibilities and bring it honestly before God and, God, and, and to lay it before him and to say, God, this is what I'm afraid of. What do you want me to know? What are you doing? What is the blessing that I'm missing? What, what am I actually needing? What am I even asking you, God, to make your request? And how many times do we make our request as a, we frame it as a, as a negative request? In other words, what we want to stop, not even what we're asking God for. So in our marriage, you know, stop spending so much time at work. What are you actually asking for? Because those are two different requests. And a negative request is a lot harder to meet than an actual positive request of what you're wanting. Or we use vague language in parenting. I wish you would show a little more responsibility. What does that even mean? I want you to pick up your room. I want you to go out and get a job. I want you to be obedient immediately the first time I ask you to do something. What am I actually asking for? And so we make our requests known to God after the conversation and and setting our minds in in light of his presence and, and his availability and his power. What am I wanting here? And in that place, Paul makes this promise that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, which doesn't even make sense in the natural, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard is like, a, is like a, a, the garrison of a city that, that watches over a city to protect it against invasion. 
And Paul's statement that by the presence of God, the Lord being at hand and us being honest with God about our, the things that make us anxious and laying them before him with thanksgiving and prayer, that it will be his peace that sets a watch over our hearts and our minds. And our role, as he continues, is to retrain our brain. I mean, this isn't easy. It's a continual relearning of our normal thought paths. In other words, it's something, there's usually something in your life that is a consistent stimulus that sends you down the worry train. A bill, an unexpected bill. A phone call from a relative. The lack of a text message response from a friend. So, something triggers and immediately your brain begins to run down this rail that is run down a million times before. And Paul's invitation is because of Christ and the work that he has in you and, and this renewed mind and, and the availability of the presence of God with us that we're able to pick up that train and run it down a different path. But the reality is so many times the ruts are so deep in the road of our, the mental path that we've run for so long that we slide back into it. And so Paul continues on. And what does he say? So finally, like my last word to you, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. That word think is, is so much more powerful than to have a thought about. It is set your mind on these things. Focus your thoughts on these things. It's an intentional act of retraining your brain to, long, to think in the ways of God and goodness and beauty and truth. And so this past week, I woke up in the middle of the night and absolutely just overwhelmed. And, and I, at first I couldn't even name. I, it was just that feel, that just general anxiety feeling. I don't know if you can identify with that. And I, but I leaned into it. You know, like I said, I was like, I'm about to preach a sermon on this on Sunday, God. Are you just trying to teach me a lesson here? But I leaned, okay, God, what am I actually feeling? Like, what is this? What do you want me to know? And I begin to be able to name, okay, what, what are the things that I'm actually right now feeling anxious about? And most of it was dealing with what was going on uh, over in, in, in Palestine, in Gaza. And just let myself feel the weight of sadness. Because the reality is like, Paul's co uh, command to not be anxious by anything, which actually he didn't come up with. Jesus said it first. He's just re repeating what Jesus already said. Don't worry about anything. Isn't a stick your head in the sand and just pretend that everything's okay, naive, sort of happy oblivion kind of experience. No, it is that we can actually feel the depths of our human emotion. We can lean into the pain of this world because we're not alone. We don't have to avoid it. We don't have to try to control it because we can't anyway. We don't have to live in this state of unresolved panic because the world feels out of control. That we can be honest with the things that we're feeling. 
And we can lean into God with that. And so in this place of just being, okay, what am I actually, what is this thing going on in me? Oh, this is what it's about. Oh, this is what I'm feeling. God, what do you want me to know about that? And I felt like he told me it's okay to be sad because it's really, really awful what's happening. And we know friends and pastors and kids they're going to be devastated. They are being devastated by the things that are happening. And it, it, it gave me permission to just grieve. And I feel like what he's saying is that, I, is that it breaks my heart too. And I just lean in there with God. You're close. You're in this. What are you asking me to do, God? How do you want me to respond? And it moves from this sort of just nameless anxiety to actual grief. And in that place of real grief, able to move forward in action. All right, God, what are you asking me to do? To pray. And to pray for my friends by name. And to call our church to pray. And to show up where we can. Just keep showing up where we can. It was actually interesting because the next day I woke up and... uh, and sorry, the other piece of that was is, is, uh, it's, okay, it's okay to be sad. It breaks my heart too. And then it's also it's like, I'm at work here. <laughs> I'm at work here. This doesn't stop me. And the next day, uh, Alicia actually sent me um, an email from the summer before. And, uh, and it was, she just said, you know, I, I woke up and was reminded about this uh, this newsletter we sent out last summer about all the Young Life camps that were happening across Israel and in Palestine. And uh, one of the most beautiful stories that emerged out of uh, that summer was the, the Young Life, um, the, the Young Life uh, director over there, a guy named Yael, is actually from Gaza, born and raised in Gaza. He's Palestinian. Uh, Palestinian Christian and uh, he's, he's the Young Life staff person now leading these clubs and he was the camp speaker and the camp he was one of the camps he was speaking to was uh, um, mostly Israeli Jewish teenagers and this is what they shared afterwards Many of you have heard stories about or met Wael in person. Wael was born in Nazareth, grew up in Gaza, studied theology in Bethlehem, and is now the area director for Young Life in Nazareth. After joining some of our Messianic staff and leaders at a spring camp this past April, Wael was asked to come and be the speaker at summer camp. Of course, at that time, no one anticipated that the place where he was from, the country where he now lived, would once again be at war. It's not only atypical for a Gazan to be tapped to share the gospel with Israeli Jewish youth. It's virtually unheard of. Some would say these elements, both the human and the spiritual, simply do not mix in that part of the world. And yet God is the great weaver. He delicately and profoundly brings together people and stories of all colors and shapes that reflect the diversity and beauty of his kingdom. 
Still the question remained, how would these Israeli youth respond to the gospel's gospel delivered on the lips of a man from the very place with which their own country was at war? The answer came quickly. Shortly after a while, took the stage of the, on the first night of camp, the walls began to come down. As he began to tell them his story, growing up in Gaza as an Arab Christian, being taught by his mother to love all people, regardless of race, politics, or religion, then moving to Galilee, getting married, and raising a family in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, the campers were glued to his every word. Most of them only knew people from Gaza as the enemy, and yet here was a man full of compassion, grace, mercy, and most of all, the love of Jesus. At one point, Wael got down on one knee, looked the young Israeli teens in the eyes, and simply said, I'm Wael. I'm from Gaza, and I love you. By the end of the week, the campers felt a powerful connection to Wael and he to them. Lives were changed forever, and not just Israeli lives. Camp included more than a dozen Sudanese refugees who have taken asylum in Israel, as well as five Ukrainian teens displaced by the war with Russia. In total, more than 2,200 teens and young adults had the opportunity to hear the gospel this past summer in the Middle East. In addition to the camp highlighted above, the first ever Young Life camp took place in the country of Jordan an overwhelmingly Muslim country where Yusuf has been training leaders the past two years. I share that. This was uh, summer of 2022 um, when uh, there was war going on in that part of the world as well. And it was just a sweet reminder that in the midst of all of the atrocities and the, the horror that's going on and the pain that is being felt on all sides in an incredibly complex situation. And as your pastor, I will tell you this. Be very wary and cautious of the news that you're receiving here in the United States because it is incredibly myopic or short-sighted and one-sided. It is a complex situation that affects everybody and is horrible for everybody over there. And to color any people group as one evil or good is foolish. It's foolish. And the gospel is for everyone, all humans, everywhere. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual forces. We are not in a war against any human. We are in a war against Satan for humanity. And as Jesus followers, we are not called in a war against, we are called in a war for, for hearts and for lives and restoration back to Jesus. And that is the gospel, that the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation and peace is available for all people. And if the gospel begins to get pitched on a political stage, it is not the gospel of Jesus. And I would implore you to go back to the Bible and back to the words, the teachings, and the life of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the conflicts in this world and we look at the conflicts in our homes, that we keep coming back to Jesus. And yes, we're talking on a global stage, but this is an incredibly personal call as well. God's invitation is to peace, and God's invitation is to joy and to freedom, and the call is for hope and for love, and that is who we are as Jesus followers, and this world needs you. This world needs you to think rightly. This world needs you to address your conflicts. 
This world needs you to address your anxieties. This world needs you to stand firm on Jesus Christ as your present and available Lord and Savior so that you can stand up as a different kind of human and enter into this world with the love and the grace as the visible, physical representation of Jesus. And we can grieve and we do grieve and we can weep and we can hurt, but we move forward with compassion and grace. We don't go run and hide and we don't throw up walls and we don't, uh, we don't vilify anyone. We look at people as humans that Jesus died for and that God loves. Amen. So I don't know where God has you this morning. I know he wants so much more for you, though. And whatever has you bound up in anxiety or fear, he knows it already. He knows it better than you do. And he knows how to lean into it and how to move forward through it. And so I invite you, even as we worship, as we create space in that rhythm of our weekly worship to take communion, the reminder of the body and the blood, the presence and the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. To come take communion. And then I invite you just to kneel, to just get on our knees. As a church, I invite us that we would be a people that are praying, praying for peace, praying for peace in Palestine and Gaza and Israel, praying for healing for wisdom. But also whatever God is wanting to do in your own soul, whatever conflict feels unresolved, whatever unforgiveness may still be lingering, will you bring it to Jesus of the cross? Will you bring it to Jesus of the cross? Let's pray, Lord. Oh, Lord, we need you. Desperately, we need you. God, we pray for all those in Gaza, in Israel, the West Bank. who are hurting, who are scared, who are grieving. I pray that somehow in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done there on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, will you give them their daily bread and literally the bread they need for today? God, forgive us. And may we be a people that forgive those who have wounded and hurt us. Lord, lead us not into temptation. May you keep us on the straight path and deliver us from evil. Lord, we deliver us from evil. For the evil in this world, we pray your deliverance. We pray your justice. We pray your mercy. Lord, it's your kingdom. It's your glory. 
It's your power forever and ever. Amen.